0: Bismillah rahman rahim alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. Wa sallallahu wa sallama wa baraka ala sayyidina wa maulana Muhammadin wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. Allahumma allimna ma yanfa'una wa anfa'ana bima allamtana wazidna min fadlika, ilman wa ta'aleema innaka ala kulli shay'in qadeer, amma ba'd. Alhamdulillah, <laughs> we began module five by introducing the topic and discussing the importance of Salat and its significance and virtues and the warnings on neglecting Salat and then we went right into the fiqh of things by discussing the timings of Salat. So I want you to picture this Salat is an obligation and it occurs five times a day. What do you have to have before you can pray? You have to have wudu. So we spent a lot of time talking about wudu and ghusl and tahara in general, so that we can be prepared for offering the salat. So we all have wudu now. We learned wudu and ghusl and tahara in every aspect of purification. Okay, so if you have wudu, can you just pray whatever prayer you wanna pray? No, you have to wait for something, time. to wait for the time. Okay, now it's time. The time has arrived. You've, you've measured the distance of the shadow for dhuhr or asr using that method. You now know it's time for dhuhr or asr or whatever salat. Now what do you have to do? What comes next? Well the timing of the prayer is marked by the call to prayer. And so today, insha'Allah, we talk about the call to prayer and the commencement call for prayer, known as the adhan and iqamah. And then after that, we talk about one of the shuru'tus salat, one of the conditions, which is covering the awrah for salat. And in this way we work through all of the conditions required before you can pray And then we talk about what we're doing while we're in salat So we're working our way through that Tonight insha'Allah we're going to talk about these two things Mostly the first one, the adhan and the iqama. And I want to give you a little factoid today You see here on the slide The word adhan, adhan with the thal is spelled here with a z and i do that on purpose because when you actually transliterate that word the adhan it should be spelled a d h a n why am i spelling it a z a n because it's in the dictionary and one of the rules in publishing usually for most publishing houses is that if you have a word from a foreign language that's already in the dictionary, you go with the dictionary spelling, even if it goes against the transliteration convention. So please pardon me as I nerd out on transliteration. So it's adhan, not azan, but it's all good. The second one is Iqama, and we know these two. And then we talk about the covering of the awrah. So let's begin with the adhan. Now, the adhan, The call to prayer is one of the sha'air of Islam, meaning it's one of the unique symbols of Islam. The sha'air are those things that distinguish Muslims from others, the hallmarks of Islam. If someone is asked to describe the imagery and sounds associated with the word Islam, they might describe different images of masajid. They might describe the clothing that is unique to Muslims. And if asked to describe sounds, they will always mention the adhan. That is the unique sound of this ummah. And the Prophet has said that the Muadhin, the one who makes the call for the prayer is forgiven for as far as his voice reaches, and whoever confirms him, whoever hears him, will confirm what he says, and repeat after him. He will get a reward similar to those who pray with him. So the Adan is a great reward. And in fact, you have this discussion among some of the Fuqaha about which role is superior, the Mu'advin or the Imam. Who gets more reward? There's an actual discussion, a back and forth with some saying The Mu'addin gets more reward than the imam So it's a great virtue in our religion to call the adhan And it's one of the hallmarks of our religion Now the word adhan is, it means to inform, right? So in, that's the linguistic meaning In the sharia meaning, the way we define it in Islamic law It is very simply, it is a, a, a particular announcement Given at a particular time for a particular act More specifically, it is to notify people About the entrance of the time of prayer With specific sayings Not just any sayings Specific sayings that are transmitted to us Now the history of the Adhan goes back to the first year of the Hijrah and some say the second year of the Hijrah because before the Adhan became a part of the sharia, the way the Salat was announced to the community was through a verbal announcement, but it was simply saying as-salat, as-salat, or as-salatu jami'a, just saying, it is time for the congregational prayer just a simple announcement like this. And the Prophet Sallallahu had once gathered the Sahaba in consultation about what they could use to inform the Muslims about the time of the prayer. And one of the Sahaba suggested using a bell, but this was disliked because that is associated with the Christians. That is something specific to the Christian tradition to announce their rites of worship and then someone suggested lighting a signal fire so you know back in the old days they would light these signal fires on the mountains to announce the arrival of an an enemy and then those who would see it would light a fire a beacon you know i'm referencing the lord of the rings here if you've seen that movie they show it but that was an old practice so something like, like a signal fire was suggested so that when people see that fire at a distant place they would know that it's time for prayer but this too was disliked because it was associated with the what the zoroastrians the majus would worship because they worship fire and later that night after this consultation one of the companions by the name of Abdullah ibn Zayd, anhu had a dream in which a person was teaching him the words of the adhan. When he woke up, he went to the Prophet Sallallahu and told him, and he was very happy with the dream. And then he ordered him to mention those sayings he heard in the dream to Sayyiduna Bilal anhu so that he could utter them aloud. And that became the adhan, the established sunnah. Uh, and this is an indication that sometimes legislation is, is all, all legislation is from Allah subhanahu wa taala, and the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam is the conduit of that at, at times too, but sometimes that was seen by sahaba and then confirmed by the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, thereby becoming Sharia. So the adhan started very early on, and it became one of the shaa'ir of Islam. What is the ruling of the Adhan? This is a class on Farda'in, and as you've noticed, not everything we're covering is explicitly Farda'in. We're not omitting things that are recommended. What is the ruling in Sharia on calling the Adhan? In the school of Imam Abu Hanifa Rahimahullah Ta'ala, on which we're basing this class, the Adhan and the Iqamah are emphasized Sunnahs. So sunnah mu'akkada means it's highly emphasized for the obligatory prayers, even if one is alone. So in the school of Imam Abu Hanifa, it is highly recommended for a person to make the adhan and the iqama even if they are alone at home. This is not not the same for some of the other schools. It's recommended. It's an emphasized sunnah, whether one is performing the current prayer or making up a missed prayer. This means that if you are alone at home, according to the Hanafi school, it is recommended for you to call the Adhan and the iqama, Even if that prayer you're about to pray is a make-up prayer from something you missed before, you still call the Adhan and the iqama, And... Imam Abu Hanifa also said that if people in a city offer salat in jama'ah, in congregation, without the adhan, they have sinned. Collectively, it's sinful. There has to be the establishment of the adhan. Uh, This again, we keep saying this, it's from the sha'air of Islam. It's one of the unique hallmarks of Islam. There is the hadith in Sahih Muslim in which it is stated that during expeditions, when the Sahaba were going on expeditions, encountering enemy troops, if they happened to come across a village and were unsure if it was an enemy village or a friendly village, they would wait to hear the Adhan. That was one of the distinguishing marks of a Muslim community. So, it's a highly emphasized Sunnah, for your prayers. Whether they are current or makeup. But it's not a sunnah to call the adhan for the janazah. Or for the Eid prayer. Or the solar eclipse prayer. Or the istisqa prayer for rain. Or tarawih, or the sunnahs. So obviously we don't call the adhan for these prayers. Nor do we call any iqama for them. Sometimes you'll hear the imams say as it's time for Eid. Uh... Salatul Eid or in Taraweeh, Salatul Taraweeh. It's announcing that it's time for salat, but without the Adhan. So the Adhan is specifically legislated for the Fard prayer, whether it's current or makeup. So again, we want to emphasize the first point here in the slide that in the school of Imam Abu Hanifa, uh, and this is for men, by the way, uh, it is uh, recommended... Highly recommended to call the adhan and the iqamah even if you're praying by yourself at home for the Father's prayer. Now we come to the issue of the wordings. And someone may say, why are we learning the wordings of the adhan? Isn't that something every single Muslim knows? The answer is possibly yes, but you'll be surprised. A lot of people, they recognize the adhan, but if they're asked to call it, they get nervous and they forget. And for this reason, we cover the wordings of the Adhan. We also cover the wordings of the Adhan because we want to recognize the diversity we have within our Islamic tradition. We mentioned this before, although we're basing this program on the legal methodology and school of Imam Abu Hanifa, Rahimahullah, at times we will make reference to the legal diversity we have in the Ummah by discussing the areas where there are significant uh, variations and these are all acceptable variations. So looking at the Adhan uh, in the Hanafi school, it is with the Takbir four times, Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar. And then there is the Shahada, Ashhadu an la ilaha illallah, Two times, and then there is Ashhadu Anna Muhammad Rasulullah, two times, and then Hayya ala Salat, two times, Hayya ala al two times, and then after this, if it's Fajr time, there is As Salatu Khairun min prayer is better than sleep, two times, after which there is Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar. La ilaha illallah So Allahu Akbar twice and La ilaha illallah once This is in the school of Imam Abu Hanifa and it's based on a particular hadith Uh, In the school of Imam Madik as well as Imam Shafi'i there's a slight difference in the way the Adhan is called Uh, and that is because in the I can speak for the Madiki school in this regard uh, you have what's called torjir. And tarji' is when the muadhin, the one calling the adhan, says the first, the shahada, twice to himself, and then says, ashadu anna muhammad rasulullah, twice to himself, the, at a tone he can hear. So if you go to Morocco, for instance, you hear the adhan, it's, it's, it's different from how it's typically called in say, Pakistan. There's only two takbirs in the beginning, it's not four, and then there's this tarjir. And you can look it up. You could go type in YouTube, uh, adhan in Morocco, and you'll hear it. But basically, it is Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar. Ashadu an la ilaha illallah, ashadu an la ilaha illallah, ashadu an Muhammad ilaha illallah, ashadu an la ilaha illallah, twice. Ashhadu an la ilaha illallah, Ashadu anna Muhammad Rasulullah, Ashadu anna Muhammad Rasulullah, and then everything else is the same. So this tarji' is repeating Ashadu la ilaha illallah twice, where a person can hear themselves. And on the microphone, you'll hear the muaddin sometimes under his breath, you can hear it like this. And then Ashadu anna Muhammad Rasulullah, twice, uh, in a voice that they can hear, it's to themselves. Uh, And this is called tarjeer so This is good to know because there is diversity in our fiqh and there's a basis for this in the hadith uh, Just as there is a basis for the way the adhan is called in the school of Imam Abu Hanifa Now it's important because it's highly emphasized to call it. It's important to make sure that you're saying it correctly and a lot of people think that they're saying it correctly, but they haven't had their adhan analyzed by someone who knows what to look for. So it's good to test your adhan, have it checked, uh, the same way you would have Surat al-Fatiha checked by a teacher, because there's lots of mistakes that people make with the adhan. And it's not a question of pronouncing something in less than a melodious manner. That's not the issue. In fact, in the Madaki school, that's, that's makruh even. But the issue is pronouncing the words of the adhan whereby you either omit a letter or you add a vow or add a letter, which is going to change the meaning. And the ulama mentioned the various common mistakes that are made when calling the adhan. And we just want to look at a few of them. Just so we can be aware uh, I do recommend that you have Just as you would recite Surah Al-Fatiha To check its pronunciation To also read the Adhan to check the pronunciation You have common mistakes like these uh, The first one, you see the highlighted letters That's what I'm highlighting the, the, the Where the mistake is so you have this. This sounds like Allahu Akbar. What's going on there? You've added an istifham. You've added a question: Is Allahu Akbar? That's what you've done. Allahu Akbar, wrong. The second one, where's the mistake? The who the ha on lafzul Jalala is extended to where it's too long. Allahu right? Another one more common, probably one of the most common, this third one, where Allahu Akbar is lengthened too long. And the person, how, how do they make this mistake? It's because they're trying to do it in a melodious way. And because they're trying to do it in this melodious way, they end up almost singing it and thereby they're adding What shouldn't be added So this would sound like Allahu Akbar Allahu Akbar They're adding the edif. We come to this next part of the shahada And you have a similar mistake Where An edif is added It should be Ashadu an Ashhadu an With a sukun. Ashhadu an la ilaha illallah. But this one is. Uh, actually, this is for Muhammad Rasulullah. Sorry. Ashhadu uh, أشهد... for either. Or Ashadu anna. أن... No. Anna is emphasis. Anna is emphasis for us. For we. Indeed, we. If a person says Ashadu anna. أن... Muhammadun Rasulullah, they are saying, I bear witness that we are indeed the Messenger of Allah. That's, that's significant. Likewise, Ashhhadu Anna Muhammadun Rasulullah, less common. Ashhhadu Anna Muhammadun Rasulullah, adding Fatha, which should be a Dhamma. Hayya ala salat is read incorrectly when a one says Hayya ala salat Hayya. They're adding an edif, and then the last one, if they add, they elongate the first word, making it into a ya. La ilaha illallah. So a few of these are really common. A few of them are not so common. It's just to be aware, so that you're not lengthening what shouldn't be lengthened. And there's similar ones for the iqama, but only one or two. Okay. Now, we said the adhan and the iqamah are highly emphasized sunnahs for the fard prayers, whether they are current or makeup prayers. Now, the iqama is basically the same thing as the adhan. However, it is different in how it's delivered. And it is the call that the salat is commencing. It's beginning right now. So, the iqama is said without pauses between the phrases, unlike the adhan. In the adhan, there should be some pauses, but the iqama is said uh, without pauses, thereby sounding a little more quick, quicker than the adhan. Now, when it comes to the iqama, just like the adhan, there's different ways you say it, there's three different ways it's transmitted. Uh, in the Hanafi school, the iqama is exactly the same as the adhan in terms of the number of phrases with the addition of qadaqamati salat qadaqamati salat so you hear i know you all noticed this right in pakistan india it's basically the adhan repeated the same number of wordings with qadaqamati salat qadaqamati salat and you come to north america and maybe for the first time you're hearing Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar, shalu an la ilaha illa Allah, anna Muhammad Rasulullah, hayi ala salaah, hayi ala falah, qala qaamati salah qala qaamati salah Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar, la ilaha in It's all been shortened now. And then if you hear someone from North Africa, it's this shortened and then it's qala qaamati salat once. What gives? These are all three different ways each of them is narrated in a hadith, and they're all valid ways of doing it. So the way that is transmitted in the school of Imam Abu Hanifa, the iqama is just like the adhan, same number of phrases, with the additional qadaqamati salat twice. And this is based on the hadith of Abu Mahdura radiyallahu anhu, in the sunan of Abu Dawood. Uh, in which it states that the Prophet Sallallahu taught him the iqamah with 17 words. 17 words, here meaning 17 phrases. So let's count them. How many times do you say Allahu Akbar? Four, so Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar, ashadu an la ilaha illallah. Ashhadu ashadu an la ilaha illallah. Ashhadu ashadu anna Muhammad Rasulullah, ashhadu anna Muhammad Rasulullah hayya ala salati hayya ala falahi That's 10. Did I say hayya ala twice? Okay, okay. Hayya ala falahi hayya ala falahi It's 12. Allahu Akbar 13. Allahu Akbar 14. La ilaha inna 15. Qala qamati salat 16. Qala qamati salat 17. The Hadith of Abu Hudurah says it was taught to him as 17 phrases, the Iqama. So this is the basis for the Hanafi way of doing the Iqama. In the Maliki school, it is Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar, only that is repeated twice, the Takbir, Ashhadu an la ilaha illallah, Ashhadu anna Muhammadan Rasulullah, Haiya alas Salat, Haiya alal Falah, Qad Iqamat al Salat, once. Allahu akbar, Allahu akbar, la ilaha in Allah. So in the Maliki iqama, the takbir is repeated twice, always, the iqama qadaqamati salat is repeated once and everything else is once. Now this is coming also from a hadith, the hadith of Ibn Abbas radiyallahu anhumah in Sahih Muslim, in which it says, umira bilalun and yashfa' al-adhan uyutir al-iqama. Bilal was ordered to recite the phrases of the adhan in pairs. And recite them once in the iqama. So there you go. The Shafi'i and Hanbali schools, the every phrase in the iqamah is repeated once, except for the takbir and the phrase "qadakama salat So that's repeated twice in the Shafi'i and Hanbali schools, and that too is based on a hadith, a hadith of Anas in Bukhari. أُمِرَ بِلَادٌ يَشْفَعَ الْآذَانِ وَيُتْرَ الْإِقَامَةِ إِلَّا الْإِقَامَةِ Right? Bila was ordered to recite the phrases of the adhan in pairs and recite them once in the iqama except for the iqama phrase itself قَدَ الصَّلَاةِ which is said twice So as you see from these three methods they're all based on hadith and they're all sound and they're all accepted variations within our tradition Alhamdulillah. So if you do one, that's fine. If you do, if you alternate between one and the other, that's fine. They're all valid ways of doing it. It's good to know this in a place like North America, where we have different people from different parts of the world who have learned these different ways, all of which are valid. All right. All right. The errors in the iqamah are less than the adhan, but usually, again, it's the lengthening of letters. You have qada qamati salat, but the most frequent mistake is not pronouncing, the, not articulating the sukun on qamat. So when you have qamat, right? I should have put it in Arabic, qamat, the ta has, ta sakinah, as sukun, After it comes alif and lam. Now that oh. alif is not really an alif, is it? It's a hamza, hamzatul wasl. So what haraka is on the hamzatul wasl? There's no harakah, it's a sukun. What happens if you have two sukuns together? It's called iltiqaa al the meeting of two sukuns. You put a kasra to, so that one follows into the other. The kasra is pronounced قَدَ الصَّلَاةِ Sometimes people aren't catching that when they're reading the iqamah, sometimes because they're reading it too quickly. And they'll say things like, قَدَ الصَّلَاةِ قَدَ الصَّلَاةِ No, قَدَ الصَّلَاةِ قَدَ with the, the kasra pronounced because of the meeting of the two seconds. Uh, if a person does it by mistake, And they're trying and they just don't catch it You know What can you do But as we learn these things It's good to check and make sure that we're reading it properly Uh, And this is because The fuqaha Say That you repeating after the the What he says The sunnah of that It's only sunnah if they're reading it correctly If they are butchering the adhan It's not a sunnah to repeat after them that, it's only if they're establishing it properly. So it's important for the Mu'adzin to to know these things, uh, specifically, and it's important for all of us to know this personally. Um, A few miscellaneous rulings. The Mu'adzin, here's another one, Mu'azzin, that's English, the English dictionary spelling, the Mu'adzin should pause shortly between each set of phrases in the adhan and should hasten with the iqama is disliked for a person in a state of ritual, major ritual impurity to perform either the adhan or iqama or for a person in a state of minor ritual impurity to perform the iqama basically you should have wudu when you call the adhan or the iqama it is recommended that the Muadhan be righteous since he is like a trustee of the religion, he must also have knowledge of the adhan and the prayer times. This is a very interesting passage. This is, this is actually coming directly from a Hanafi text. The Mu'addin is conveying the call of Allah Ta'ala for praying. And the one who is conveying the call should embody something of the call itself. This is why the Mu'addin should ideally be someone who is mustaqim, someone who is upright, who has dhyana, you know, they're religiously observant. Calling the adhan in most countries of the world is quite regulated because you have Wizaratul Awqaf, the Ministry of Endowments and Islamic Affairs running the masajid. So they appoint the imams, they appoint the muaddins, sometimes in village masajid, that's a community affair, but usually you have some order where there is a designated Mu'addin or a set of mu'adhan what you don't often have there that you often have here in North America is a kind of adhan free for all there's a lot of masajid like that where you know maybe the there is a Mu'addin but he's not there and anyone who shows up just says you know I want to call the adhan you know I'm going to volunteer to call the adhan if the community approves of that and there's a basic protocol, that's fine provided they know what they're doing but if they don't pronounce it properly someone should step in and say you should uh, correct this or correct that and you, know, you just encourage them you don't do it publicly you know we don't shame people but people should know what they're doing. Uh, they need to know how to do the event and the prayer times and this is obviously in a time before, apps and all of that, the mu'adhin should also face the qibla unless he is riding. So this is in the context of people traveling and if they're on an animal and the time for salat has come, they can, the, the one calling the adhan on the animal can just call it wherever they are even if they're not facing the qibla. Now if you're not on an animal, the sunnah is to face the qibla for all of these actions. It's also recommended that the Mu'adhin places his fingers in his ears. Usually it's described as the thumb. Sometimes the the index finger, the thumb behind like this. Uh, Or just the hands over the ears. Or even one hand over the ear. The the right hand ideally. And to turn the head left and right. And they mention that it shouldn't be the chest or the feet. So the person's facing the Qibla, as they call the Adhan, and the turning is with the head, left and right, right. So they have the hand, the hands or one hand, and is left and right. They're not turning their whole body, because the body faces the qibla, which is the sunnah, the entire time. Uh, and they're doing this when they say hayer al salati, uh, and then to the left when they say hayer al falah. The one who has missed a prayer should make the adhan and the iqama prior to that makeup as the Prophet Sallallahu ordered Bilal to do so, when he and the group missed the Fajr prayer after resting on the way back to Khaybar. Uh, and this is the hadith in Sahih Muslim, where they woke up after this long and arduous journey, and the Prophet ﷺ ordered everyone to move from that camp to another area, and then ordered Bilal to call the Adhan, and then the Iqama, and that was a qada, that was a makeup prayer, and therefore the fuqaha say if you have missed a prayer for a valid or even an invalid excuse the sunnah is to call the adhan and the iqama for the makeup prayer they say that if you have several makeup prayers one adhan is enough but you should offer the iqama for every makeup prayer individually it's disliked to omit the iqama for those makeup prayers so this is uh, some of the miscellaneous aspects of the adhan in the iqamah. All of this pertains to the one calling the adhan in the iqama, whether it's the muadhin appointed at a masjid or musalla, or a person praying at home by themselves or with their family. What about the people who hear the adhan? What is it we should be doing when we hear the adhan? If a person hears the adhan being called according to the sunnah, in that there are no alhan, no mistakes, he is to cease his actions and utter the same words as the muadhin. So when the muadhin says, Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar, they repeat under their breath and so on. Until they get to hayya ala salat and hayya ala falah. For those, what should the person say? Right, you all know, Alhamdulillah. wa وَلَا قُوَّةَ إِلَّا بِاللَّهِ What about when it's Fajr and the Mu'adzin says, أَصَّلَةُ خَيْرٌ مِّنَ النَّوْمِ Do you repeat that phrase? No. Do you say, wa وَلَا قُوَّةَ إِلَّا بِاللَّهِ No. The narration mentions, one should say, wa bararta. You have spoken truthfully and done good. One narration says, you can even say, Mashaallah Uh, There is a little more room in that area whether you say one or the other So this is the Sunnah to respond to the mu'adhin By repeating the words except for these where one says la hawla wa la quwata illa billah or sadaqta wa bararta Why? What does one get out of that? There's more after a person has heard the adhan and repeated after the mu'adhin, is recommended for them to supplicate, to make a du'a. Everyone should memorize this du'a. Allahumma rabb haadhihi da'wati taam wa al qa'ima aati muhammadan al wasilat al-wal-fadila wa ba'athu maqaman mahmoodan illadhi wa'addah innaka la tukhlifu al-mi'ad And this is, uh, there's a few versions of this hadith uh, I highlighted Or I put one in yellow To show you one variation uh, The meaning of this O oh Allah The Lord of this complete call And this prayer That is about to be established Give Muhammad the wasilah And the supreme virtue And exalt him to a position of glory Which you have promised him Indeed you do not break your promise So I I left the word wasila, untranslated because this is referring to a very high rank in Jannah fitting only for the most exalted and elevated of Allah's servants. It also refers to the shafa'ah of the Prophet his intercession for the ummah. So he mentions this in the hadith. Uh, I hope I will be that man. If anyone asks the wasila for me, it becomes incumbent upon me to intercede for him. So when you say this du'a after the adhan, you receive this guarantee of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam that you receive his shafa'a, his intercession on the day of judgment. And there's a few different versions of this. Uh, you have this one here. Allahumma wa salatil muhammadanil wal fadila وَبَعَثُهُ مَقَامٍ مَحْمُودًا أَلَّذِي وَعَدَّهُ And that's it. Then you have this version which adds In لَا تُخْلِفُ Mi'ad, found in the Sunan of Imam Al-Bayhaqi. Uh, there's another one which says الْوَصِيلَةَ uh, وَالدَّرَجَةَ The lofty station. And these are all variations, one can say. And this is uh, highly emphasized so that one uh, is receiving the shafa'ah, the intercession of the Prophet sallallahu All right, so that that ends our discussion on the adhan and the iqama. Before we move on to the next section, are there any questions on the adhan and iqama in particular? Yes. Why the hand? That's a good question. Um, the some of the ulama say that it is to assist the mu'adhan in modulating their voice because when it's think about a microphone you know unless you're leading the salat here you, you don't have the direct experience but when you are praying salat leading it reciting somewhat loudly without a microphone it's difficult to modulate your voice right but if you have a microphone that's magnifying it you hear your voice a lot better so you can make minor adjustments to make sure that it's carrying better. So putting the hands to the ears facilitates that. Another, some of the other ulama say that uh, it also carries a certain symbolism. That when you are calling the people to salat, and you're covering your ears like this, even putting your fingers, you're ignoring anybody else. Who cares what people are saying? You're making the important call in the moment. So as you're making the call, you're not lending an ear to what anyone else has to say. That's some ulema mentioned this too. And ultimately, it's about facilitating the projection of the voice. If the voice is projected by a microphone, then there's no need to do it for that purpose, obviously. Um, so one really has a choice if they want to do it or not do it with a microphone. Yes. I don't recall the ex- the exact narration and the details behind it. Uh, but you know there there's there's a bit of history there with the phrases within the adhan uh, or certain minor additions and 'alayhi al-amr you know that which became the settled upon way of delivering it uh, was this as we see. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Should we just When it's time for is it law? Is it? No it's only when You're hearing the Adhan, only when you hear the adhan called, adhan for, adhan. And then you repeat After the Mu'adhan And then you say this So at home Like women Usually when they pray They can't make this law? Uh, I wouldn't say you can't But it's not It's linked to a To a cause And that cause Isn't present When you're When you're at home Not hearing the Mu'adhan So uh, Come for Jum'ah insha'Allah. But we have those clocks these days that, you know, that That's a good question. Can you make the dua hearing the, the alarm then? Uh, you know, I, I'm sure some scholar has been asked that, and I, I haven't heard the answer. So I don't have an answer, yes or no. But I would say that if a person does that, hoping and receiving the shafa'ah of the Prophet I hope that Allah Kareem, Allah will reward that person for the intention, uh, even if the sabab isn't exactly applicable in their situation. Allahu A'lam. Something I can look into, inshaAllah. Any other questions on the adhan or iqamah? Yeah, that's another issue. Uh, now, in in some of the Madahib there's a lot of leeway for the mu'adhin to make their own personal du'as before and after the adhan. And there's a lot of nasus, a lot of text within the books of fiqh that talk about that. Um, this, uh, obviously, in, in some parts of the world, it can be quite animated, right? Because they're on the microphone before Fajr even comes in, and it can be quite loud. Uh, And I'm not justifying that per se, but there's a basis for uh, the Mu'addin making salawat before or after. Uh, It's a very common practice in the Islamic lands, and the fuqaha, a good number of fuqaha have uh, allowed for that. Uh, The issue is when it's institutionalized and people feel that it's a part of the adhan and essential to it, where it's one and the same, that's where confusion arises. So, you know, that's, that's what I know on the issue, Wallahu a'lam. Khir. Okay, so we'll go to the shurut again. It's not valid to begin the prayer without having fulfilled certain shuru certain conditions, such as being in a state of ritual purity, tahara, both major and minor. So that's all from module four tahara. Number two, being free of any physical filth on one's garments, body, and place of prayer. So that's also tahara we've talked about. So the najasa, whether it's on your clothes, on your body, or your masalla, your place of prayer. However, I want you to imagine that you're standing on a 10 by 10 carpet. And you're going to pray on this carpet. This is your extra large prayer rug, 10 by 10. On the left corner, right at the end of that prayer rug, there is Najasa. Can you offer Salat on that prayer rug? Depends how large the area Okay. Let's say it's 9 by 9. We're going to shrink the carpet now. Can you pray on it? Yes. 8 by 8? 7 by 7? Oh, but this is, that's the, the, prayer, the prayer rug is not your, your own garment or body. So, okay, six by six, five by five, four by four, three by three. The answer is that, yes, the place of prayer has to be pure. But what is meant by that is the place where your two feet, your two knees your two hands and your forehead go in salat. Because that's where you have contact with the ground. So if you have a prayer rug, even if it's a normal-sized prayer rug, and there's some najasa in the corner, but neither your hands, nor your feet, nor your knees, nor your forehead and nose are going to come in contact with that najasa, theoretically, you could pray on that rug and your prayer is valid because the place of prayer is not some rug you're standing on. It's where your body is in contact with the earth, whether there's a barrier or no barrier. So if there is najasa on those areas where your body will have contact, you have to get rid of that before you can pray. That's what is meant. Um, You know, there's a misconception a lot of people have that you can't pray without a prayer rug. Have you ever heard of that before? Yeah. They, they feel they can't pray unless they have a prayer rug. Oh, I didn't bring my, my prayer rug. They're, they're hesitant to pray on the grass because they didn't bring their prayer rug. But what's the assumption we make about everything that is pure? So the assumption is everything is pure until proven otherwise. They have no reason to say they can't pray without the prayer rug. They can't assume that everything is najasa until proven otherwise. Prayer rugs are not required, right? If a person wants one for comfort or for the heat or uh, just to avoid the moisture or some other reason, that's fine. But it's not a requirement. Um, Okay. So one and two, we covered those issues more or less in module four on tahara. The next condition that has to be fulfilled for the prayer to be valid is al Awra, the covering of the Awra, covering one's nakedness. We covered one and two, now we get to number three. Uh, and let me say here at the outset that we're gonna revisit this issue later on in the Farda'in when we get into the basic halal and Haram. Right now we're talking about the covering of the Awra as a condition for Salat. Uh, we're not going to talk about the covering of the awrah uh, more broadly and and the issues surrounding that that's going to come up later on inshallah but much of what we say here applies to what we're going to say there all right so does anyone note anything about this picture or these set of pictures what's anything that stands out to you What's that? The small girl is in front of- oh, the small girl? Anything else? Sorry, I think yes, of course. I think it's the, the, of the, bottom. the compare and contrast. Yeah. yeah. Uh, specifically, the top and, and bottom right. So if you look at the top right, I, I think this is Medina back in the, I don't know when, long, long, long time ago. It's a colorized picture. And you see, this is, these are all men, right? And then below today, you just have, you know, average masjid, average musalli's wearing everyday clothing. So there's, you can see a distinction there. But everyone's covering their awrah. So let's talk about this. We wanna begin with a very important point. When a person has wudu, and their garments and body and place of prayer are all pure, they're getting ready to utter the takbir, to enter into the ritual act of salat. In prayer, one is standing before Allah Ta'ala in this act of ritual devotion. When a person is in salat, there has to be reverence and awe. Haybah and ta'zeem. Therefore, covering the awrah in salat is sought after in and of itself. Matlubun bidhatiha. It is sought in and of itself, not just in public places where others could see us. This means that we have to cover our awrah for salat, even if we're all alone in Inside of a closet with the lights turned out. You could be in the darkness of night inside of a dark room. You still have to cover your aura for you to pray. Because the covering of the aura for salat is not just about concealing when in the presence of unrelated people or other people. Right? When you, of course, when a person is in their own uh, bedroom and they may uncover their aura when changing or whatever... It is what it is But in salat It's not just about covering in front of others It's about one state of reverence And awe in the salat So the aura has to be covered No matter who's there and who's not, Or who's not there And we need to now define the aura For men and women And there are some very minor differences of opinion Between the schools on this In the Hanafi school the aura for a man is the area right below the navel until right below his knees. Uh, so, if you can picture the navel, the belly button, the aura is not the belly button itself, it is right below it. And that extends to the bottom of the kneecap area, the knees. Right? Now, in, in some of the other schools, it would be the navel to the upper part of the kneecap. A little bit different, but that is the awra. The uh, and there's differences in the other schools about the awra and the, the, the different types of awra. Or you have awra khafifah, awra uh But this is the basic awra for men. So in the Hanafi school, the navel isn't awra, but what is below it and including the kneecap is awra. Now for women, the awrah for a woman is the entire body except for the face, the hands, and the feet. Uh, The feet are are not considered awrah according to the school of Imam Abu Hanifa, although there's a difference of opinion within the school. Uh, Generally, it's not from the awrah. And this is the awrah for women. So for men and women, uh, this is the awrah. Does that mean a man should go pray Salat without a shirt on? No. There's a minimum and then there's perfection. Right? But that's the Aura. The, that which is covering the Aura must not be see-through such that it can show the skin color beneath it. If a person is wearing a white shirt and you can see the difference in tone between the shirt and the skin beneath it, although it may be covering the limb, it's still showing. So it's not uh, concealing and this is for men or, men and women right if, likewise the covering of the awra has to be from all sides you all know you've seen it you, you know what I'm about to say especially on Jumu'ah people are praying sunnas and when they're standing in Salat everything is fine with their jeans and shirt and then when they make Rukur you can see the Aura is uncovered from the back side. The front is covered, but the back side is uncovered. And they don't seem to notice that it's coming un- uncovered. So it has to cover from all sides, not just the front part. This means those t-shirts that are too short, where they then expose the Aura, or the pants that are dragging too low. You know, this all has to be fixed but it's no harm if the aura can be seen by himself so if, if you if a, specifically for a man uh, if you're in salat and you have a baggy loose shirt and as you're making rukur your eye glances and you can actually see from within the collar down into the area that's seen by you that's fine you that's not going to violate anything uh, as long as it's not seen by others. If the time for prayer comes and a person doesn't have something to cover their aura, they are to pray sitting while gesticulating for the bowing and prostration. So this means for whatever reason, it could be you know in the books of fiqh, they mention highway robbery uh, often as the reason for this. A person doesn't have clothing because it was all stolen from them uh, because clothing used to be expensive they say, if you don't have any clothing, uh, what do you do? You, they say, you pray because the time of prayer is in. But you pray sitting down and you do the basic bowing movement in sajda so that you keep as much of yourself concealed as possible. But they say that this covering is for a legitimate reason. Right? It's the clothing was stolen uh, or something happened to it. And if it's for an illegitimate reason, so the person's going out without covering their aura like they should be and they have the clothes available, in that situation, they have to repeat that prayer later on when they cover their aura. Right? So covering their aura is quite important. The fuqaha say that covering their aura. Is more important than the pillars of salat of the full bowing and the full sajda. If it's between concealing oneself, one's uh, nakedness, and doing the full bowing and prostration, they say you choose between concealing uh, you choose concealing yourself over fulfilling those arkan. That's where the priority goes, and you see this in salat. A lot of the rulings. Uh, are based on what is most conducive to concealment and modesty. So these are a few issues on the Aura. Uh, and as I said, general issues regarding the Aura uh, and obviously issues with hijab and whatnot, that's all we'll will come later on uh, in maybe module, I want to say eight, which not, not too far off. But we'll talk about that in a more general sense. So we've learned wudu and Tahara. We, we now know how to determine the prayer times. We know how to call the Adhan and the iqama. We know how to cover ourselves and dress properly for Salat. Now, now what do we gotta do? Uh, we gotta find out where the Qibla is. We're not gonna do a very detailed class on how to determine the Qibla. We're not gonna bring compasses or anything like that. We'll, it'll be very basic for how do you determine it with an app, with a compass, and when you don't have those things, what are some basic things you can do? There There's some fairly simple ways of determining the qibla um, without using a tool. We'll talk about that. And then from there, we go directly into the description of the salat itself, inshallah ta'ala. All right, uh, any questions? Yes. What's up Yeah, so we're going to talk about the mubtilat, those things that invalidate the prayer further on when we get to it. So there are some details there. If your awrah comes undone, say there's a strong wind, your awrah is covered, but you get a strong wind and it gets uncovered, Uh, is your prayer still valid? How much of your awrah has to come uncovered for it to be invalid? Or how often in the salat? There's a few details there that we'll cover when we get to the section on what invalidates the prayer. For now, we just want to describe the, the, the basic description, the bare minimum of the awrah, one should have before they begin the salat. And then when we get into the description of the salat in it, we'll look at those nuts and bolts, inshallah. So another thing that I've seen, especially during Sunday school time, is uh, kids wearing shorts. Kids wearing shorts. Yeah. Exactly. And, and yeah, this is important. Uh, I'm not sure if everyone heard you, but he's, Brother Muhsin's mentioning the issue of shorts. Can you pray in shorts for men? Yes, you could, but you have to be very careful because when you bow, obviously the clothing rides up a little bit. And then when you make sajda, uh, it rides up a little bit. As you're making these movements, you risk exposing the aura. If you're gonna pray in shorts, and you want to be on the safe side, those shorts should be more like capris. So they're covering the full kneecap and a little bit below. So that as you're making a record there's no chance of it ever riding up so far that you expose your aura, right? So I'm not a fan of praying in sh- shorts, even if they cover when the person's walking around, because this is what happens. And people shouldn't be so lax with that. Um, also in the back people should make sure that their shirts are uh, as well as their pants are held in such a way that when they're in sajda the shirt or the area from the back of the shirt isn't going to be exposed exposing the back part of their awrah from beneath the navel so the, the, the lower back from beneath the navel on the opposite side and how many times, brothers, do you walk between the rows, leaving Juma and you see someone, you walk past someone in, in their sunnahs, and you can see, just see all that area, just all shining for everyone to see, and they don't realize their awrah is exposed in the middle of salat. And if we're honest, we can say it's probably happened to all of us at one point in our lives. But by learning this, we become more aware of these possible areas where the salah could be invalidated in everyday matters and uh, as they said in the old cartoon knowledge knowing is half the battle just just knowing it creates that awareness and as you're aware it likely won't happen to you inshallah in So yeah, in the other schools, the, the feet are considered awrah. It's also considered an awrah among many within the Hanafi school. And they say, the other schools would mention that the, the bottom of the feet are not included in this. So if the woman is praying, uh, whether it is her everyday clothing or a prayer outfit, and she's not wearing socks, it's fine because the outfit is covering the tops of the feet. If she's in sajda and the soles of her feet are exposed, that doesn't have any bearing because that's pardonable. It's just the the tops of the feet. Yes. The face and the hands. So I didn't get the first part of your question. I the guidance, In the Hanafi school, why are the feet? Um, this goes back to the legal reasoning and how they understand the the language of the text and uh, what is considered uh, what is considered awra and not. So the feet. Uh, those who consider the feet to not be from the awra, uh would argue that. Because of everyday common use And the lack of footwear and socks And how they get dirty And because the dresses normally cover them It's not an aura uh, in the same way As the other parts of the body That, are, that, are, that could be exposed um, So there's more leeway right? And you'll find in the, in the more detailed books of fiqh They talk a little bit more about those areas Where there's leeway because of Umum al-balwa, you know, common challenges with uh, clothing, right, because man or woman, if you're covering your aura, let's say you're covering your, your arms from the wrist up and you have a garment like this, what happens if you make wudu and you raise your arm and this comes down? You know, what's going on here? If you raise your hands for salat, okay? If we say the awrah is the hands and the face, Is this the hand? Is that now an exposed aura? Or do we say the hand includes this whole general area? So in the more detailed books of fiqh, they talk about those finer points and how when people have everyday uh, chores, gathering firewood, uh, fetching water out of a well, uh, tending to animals and this and that, inevitably they're going to move around such that the garments move and some parts are exposed but these are the general parts that just get exposed it's not the same as uh, the the more severe parts of the aura or the heavy aura this is why some scholars differentiate between the heavy aura and the light aura and what's excusable and not excusable they'll say the light aura if it's exposed it, it it can be pardonable as opposed to the heavy aura being exposed. Because if the heavy awrah is exposed, I and mean, we're, talking, we're talking about the, the, the private areas, if that's exposed, of course that's invalidating the prayer. So for daily use, you know, uh, daily issues, the person, the hands and the face and the feet, if the garment is lifted and slightly open or exposed, these are all pardonable issues because they're unavoidable, right? Wallahu a'lam. Okay. It's recommended. It's recommended to wear a topi. Is it recommended to have a? a it's yeah. It's it, it is in the Hanafi school. It's it's emphasized as a part of the the sunnah uh, of dressing for the prayer because Allah Taala says in the Quran. يَا bani Adam خُذُوا زِينَتَكُمْ عِنْدَ كُلِّ مَسْجِدٍ O sons of Adam, O children of Adam, take your adornments to every place or time of prayer. Meaning, when you go to Salat, you should wear something that is more dignified. And so, is generally recommended to wear, to, to cover the hair in Salat, to cover the head. Uh, the Fuqaha say, if a person was trying to train themselves to be humble, they can uncover their head. And that that sounds very strange in this day and age because in the pre-modern period, everyone covered their heads. And if you were to go to someone and knock off their turban or their kufi, they would probably want to fight you. That was uh, incredibly disrespectful to do. Uh, And you'll even read accounts about how this person wanted to embarrassed this person, so they uh, smacked the turban off of his head. And it was such a, a scandalous affair because it was seen as a mark of dignity to cover the head. And they said, therefore, if you prayed without covering your head for the intention of training yourself to be humble, then you could pray without covering your head. But, you know, in this day and age, we don't have the same issue. If a person prays and they cover, they cover their head, that's a good thing, right? Uh, if they choose not to, they're not sinful, but they're leaving something that is recommended and better, right? Uh, I know in some parts of the world they have a, they have a box in the entrance of the masjid for you to put on a kufi if you didn't bring one. And I know in one masjid like that, if, if you come into the masjid and you don't take one out of the box and you enter salat someone's going to come and put one on your head I don't think people should do that because you're disturbing people in salat over something that's not wajib but you know I don't think we need to have a a box for kufis just keep one in your car inshallah right right, good point in in the books of hadith narration they mention the qualities that will cause one to have their narrations rejected and one of them is uh, to have qualities that are Uh, demeaning of proper manhood it's like a whole list of qualities uh, largely a lot of them are culturally specific things that if they did them it demeaned their manhood and made them uh, their narrations unacceptable because they lack integrity one of them was going around bareheaded another one was eating in the marketplace right Okay, ان شاء الله وصلى الله وسلم على سيدنا محمد وعلى اله وصحبه وسلم